Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Rabbi Michael Siegel of On Shayamit Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion of Kitisa. Is anyone beyond reproach? Have you ever heard the term beyond reproach? Yeah, sure. Have you ever used it in a sentence? Like you are <laughs> beyond reproach? Um, I don't think I have because it's one of those, it seems to me like it borders on the cliche and it borders almost on like uh, journalism speak. And it's one of those phrases that I've never really thought about the meaning of it, except that, you know, that most people are not beyond reproach, even if you say they are. So I guess maybe that's another reason I haven't used it much. And yet in our society, it seems as though we are not dealing with it as a colloquial phrase or, you know, some literary uh, uh, imagining, but we actually look at people as if they are beyond reproach, beyond even uttering words of reproach because you're a lost cause. Hmm, that's interesting. I often think of it the other way. I think of it as they're perfect. You can't criticize them. They're so great. They're beyond reproach. You can't call them into question. Right. So that's interesting. I think it could be read either way. And, I, and I've seen it used both ways. But I think in the portion of this week, you have this situation where Moses has gone up to the mountain, received the Torah. He's late in coming down. The people panic. They fall back into their Egyptian ways. They build a golden calf. And they dance around the golden calf. And Moses is sent back down the mountain, has a very strong reaction, breaks the tablets. There is actually fighting amongst the people. And then Moses castigates the people and then goes up to God to beg for forgiveness and argue that the people should not be destroyed. You know, this is the Jewish original sin. You know, it's not eating the fruit in the, in the Garden of Eden, but standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and building a golden calf, that's about as bad as it gets for Jews and the Jewish religion. And what God wants to do is God wants to kill them. God wants to destroy them. There's nothing left to say. These people are rotten to the core. They're just not who we. I thought you were. I'm not even going to bother trying to reason with you. I'll make a new people out of you, Moses. To me, that has kind of a familiar ring to it. I think we do that a lot in our own society. I think we simply say, you're not worth the breath. You're just beyond the pale. I can't, I can't deal with you. I'm not going to deal with you. I'm simply going to cancel you, which is another way of saying you're not worth reproaching. Yeah, we do it literally with the death penalty, right? There are certain crimes that we consider so grave that the only way, at least in quite a few of our states in this country, uh, the only way to, to properly punish it is to remove this person from the earth, not even life in prison is um, enough punishment for this person. And, you know, we, as you said, we do it in much more subtle ways with, you know, with cancel culture. This person will no longer be allowed to have a Twitter account or to uh, have a column in the New York Times um, because they've done something that's so offended our sensibilities. So there's this broad spectrum, but I think it gets down to this. We as a society have a duty to be, to judge and to decide who is acceptable and who isn't and what, how they should be punished. It's really, you know, slippery stuff. And, and it, I wonder if it leaves any room for forgiveness. I want to deal with, uh, respond in two ways. First of all, I want to disagree with you on the reason behind capital punishment, but I also want to kind of 
talk about the deleterious effects of not having that conversation, of simply saying, I, there's nothing left to talk about. In, in terms of the capital crime, when you take another person's life, at least from the Jewish point of view, you have forfeited your own. That's the deeper meaning of a life for a life. You forfeited your life. Now, whether the society decides on the death penalty or a life imprisonment, that's a separate issue. It's not simply because we're the society saying that you're beyond the pale. The crime calls for a drastic punishment. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the larger issue, which I think is more pertinent to the, this, the conversation about the golden calf, what happens when a society stops talking? Moses is willing to engage with God. Had Moses not been willing to engage with God, then the people would have been destroyed. And Moses is willing to engage with the people to go through a process that begins with words and ultimately will be in actions. This is how a healthy society functions. You actually have the conversation. You don't label the person evil. You simply go through the, the motions of the conversation, say, you're a citizen, I'm a citizen, we have to have this conversation, as opposed to saying, I wouldn't even know where to begin talking to you, you're just beyond. Yeah, well, there's so much debate about this in our society right now, the idea that uh, you see it often on college campuses, which were supposed to be places where people disagreed and engaged in the arguments and learned from the arguments. And now it feels like in many environments, the conversation is being stunted because there's this um, low tolerance for, for people who have different views. As a result of that, you cut off the dialogue that you're talking about. And, um, and I think that permeates not just, you know, it's not just something that stands out every once in a while when a speaker is invited to campus, but it permeates our lives. It, it raises the question of whether you can be friends or even love someone with whom you've had a, a powerful disagreement or a profound emotionally shattering argument. Is there no way to, to come back from that and still have a relationship? I think it creates a really difficult dynamic in the public, but in private as well. Oh, I don't think there's any question. And it's interesting that there's actually a commandment to rebuke. You will rebuke your neighbor. And it falls in an interesting place. It's in the book of Leviticus in the holiness code. And what precedes it is you will not hate your neighbor in your heart. And on the other side of it is, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So this issue is really uh, underscored because rebuke is somewhere between hate and anger and love and caring. In other words, if I'm angry and I rebuke someone, am I rebuking them from a place of anger and, and hatred? Or am I rebuking you from a place of love? If I rebuke you from a place of anger and hatred, that conversation is going nowhere. But if I rebuke you from a place of love and caring, then there's a possibility there will be a, a redress of the issue, but also the possibility of healing in the relationship. And I think this is a very powerful idea. If I have given up on you, if, I'm, if, if my rebuke is coming from a place of judgment of the other person, then I'm not going to listen. I have nothing to say to you. Mm -hmm. But if I feel like it's coming from a place where you really care about me, then that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, that's right. We rebuke our children all the time, right? Like, and what is, you know, to rebuke, when I think of that, the meaning of that word, I think of sternly disapproving, letting them know that this is not acceptable behavior. Um, and we do that with our kids all the time. And that comes from a place of love, right? No question about it. 
Um, but often that term has a such a negative connotation. It's to suggest that you have just totally rejected somebody. The equivalent of like, you know, the rejection under the rim of the when the basketball player's going up, right? You've just slammed it in their face. They're toast. Um, but that's not coming from a place of love that, you know, rebuking our children can be just as strong and just as firm, but it comes from love. And if you were Moses in this moment in time, I'm, I'm just going to put myself in Moses's place. I was the prince of Egypt. I stood up for this people. I killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And it cost me. I had to run away. God sent me back to bring this people out of Egypt. And I did. I risked my life to face Pharaoh. I brought down the 10 plagues on people I care about. Remember, I grew up in that household. And so... I bring this last plague on this people, and then I watch them get drowned in the um, Sea of Reeds. And here we are. God has brought us out. This should be a moment of singular glory. And these people have turned it into the ugliest of ugly moments. If I was Moses, first of all, I might think about, well, maybe I'd be better if we just start with a new people for me. But I think that he is motivated not by hate, not by anger, but by love. And that makes all the difference because the people find their way forward. They're able to look inside of their own hearts. It's hard, but they go forward. And that's the challenge. It's not like a Hallmark movie where everybody lives happily ever after. There are going to be other pitfalls. There are going to be other problems. That's how a real society, that's how a real relationship goes forward. I think this is going on every level in our society where some people are saying, think about the 1619 Project. Some people are saying, we need to look at our history and deal with it and as a rebuke, Right. Look, let's look at slavery. Let's look at the history of this country. And some people are hearing it not from a position of caring about the, the present and future of this country, caring about what happened in the past, but they're hearing it as a judgment against white people, as a judgment against America. And how we hear it and how it's said makes all the difference because not everybody who's who's bringing the message of 1619 is bringing it with a sense of love and a, a hope for, for rebuilding and not everybody who's hearing it is hearing it from a place of love they may be hearing it from a place of anger and maybe sometimes prejudice and hatred and so it's right there where the rebuke can help us as a nation not only face our past face our present and and then create a new future or it's going to destroy us or rip us apart, at least. And I mean, not destroy us, but rip us apart. Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It comes down to a question of faith in a way. You know, if you have faith in this relationship and whether you're talking about, you know, black people's faith in, the, in America and, and seeing democracy fulfill its promise or whether it's a personal relationship and you have faith in your partner and you're willing to criticize them in, in the hopes that the relationship grows stronger or whether it's your faith in God or whether God's faith in his people. If you're building toward a place of faith that you believe in this future together, then the rebuke can be a positive one, right? I think that's right. I mean, in our society, you know, we use terms like got called out. He called you out. Well, okay. Was there a reciprocal moment where the relationship was recast? Did it go forward in a positive way? Or it was just somebody wagging their finger at someone else or calling them out for whatever they did wrong. To 
create a society where criticism can be heard, where criticism isn't judgment, is an act of love and caring, is a society that's going to grow and evolve. I see that a lot in Israel. At least I did see a lot of that in Israel. I'm a, I think you could question that today and because I think a lot of things in Israel are becoming as politicized as the United States. But I do see you would go watch a Knesset meeting and it would feel like a free-for-all and kind of bordering on a Three Stooges movie at times. What was really happening, there was a family, people who felt very close to one another, responding to one another and rebuking one another, not from a place of hatred, but from the love of family. And I think that that's something that we're missing in the United States right now. I think that we suspect each other. I think we categorize each other. I don't think COVID has helped by a long shot, right? We, we feel very distant from each other. We feel kind of cocooned and in our own little bubble. And, and I think that we're not used to being open to being criticized or critiqued and not open to being rebuked. And I think that makes a difference in our society. It's not a positive one. I hope that we can find some lessons here to lead us back, um, both in Washington and, uh, you know, in our own lives. I think there's something to be learned, as usual, from, from the text of the Torah and Moses as a leader. Thanks, Jonathan. 